The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Label Wolf now presents his lecture, Toward Jewish Mindfulness. I thought it might be a good idea if we began with a little uh, exercise in terms of calming ourselves. So why don't you just simply close your eyes and just become aware of a light source in the center of your head, internally an incandescent source of light which becomes progressively more bright and begins to enlighten your whole head space and facial area, feeling warm and comfortable. Allow that light source to become a little brighter so that the light begins to flow down through your neck into your torso area, providing inner warmth, inner light, and now allow the light source in the mind to become even brighter so that it flows down your neck, torso, and through your limbs, arms, thighs, legs, through your toes, feeling the flow of the neshama throughout your body, feeling fully aglow, even to the surface of the skin and beyond, creating a warm aura around you so that anyone who enters into your presence feels the warmth of your aura, of your neshama. And gently open your eyes, coming all the way back right here into the room. In the space of less than one hour, it's obviously going to be a Herculean task to be able to trace the nature of mindfulness in the contemporary world. That's about 43 years and at the same time trace Jewish spiritual teachings, which certainly have been several hundred years old since the Baal Shem Tov, and we can certainly go back to Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai, and probably back to Adam Harishon, so some thousands of years. So to compress all that, and in a way be able to compare Jewish spiritual teachings with the way that uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn evolved mindfulness is not possible. 
So what I'm going to do in the shortness of time is provide us with a few headlines as to the way that mindfulness seems to be perceived in the contemporary world and look at how it might fit into the Jewish spiritual model. I never want to fit Jewish spiritual teachings into a secular model, but vice versa. My worldview is Jewish, and everything that occurs in the world should be able to fit in or not fit in to that model. So I thought that the best way to begin is perhaps to look at what seems to be today's vantage point as to what this word mindfulness connotes. So I've provided you here with a working definition, a mental state achieved by focusing one's consciousness and awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, bodily sensations and surrounding environment in a non-judgmental way through a gentle nurturing lens. I've highlighted here in red some of the ambiguities that I find within the definition, although this is a common usage of the English words. What does mental mean as opposed to emotional? Are we able to distinguish the two successfully? Last night, when I gave a session on anger and how to eliminate anger from our personal profile, the audience had great difficulty, A, defining what is emotion. We all seem to know it by experience, and yet we find great difficulty in defining what it is and distinguishing it from mind process. So that's one difficulty, which I may try to allude to to some extent, because it's very important in our context. Focusing. What does the word focus mean? Does it mean narrow angle beam? Does it mean depth? Does it mean breadth? Does it mean context? Is consciousness and awareness the same human experience? And why the two words? Acknowledgement and acceptance. What do we mean by that? Does it mean we necessarily agree? Within mindfulness, it seems to be as a consequence of the term non-judgmental? Does that mean that we have no criteria to measure what our phenomenon of consciousness reads? And of course, the question is, what is the lens through which we actually experience life? So as you see, although it's an all-embracing definition, there are some serious questions which we can ask and will ask in context of this session. As we know, the uh, format of mindfulness as uh, Dr. Kabat-Zinn evolved did arise from a pathway that is not Jewish, namely Buddhist. So one has to also be careful as to what extent those teachings may be consonant with and, or otherwise with terms of Judaism. And I'll try to raise some of those as we go along. By way of contrast, or complementary, what is Jewish spirituality? So I've given another working construct here. It's a practice of mitzvot, 
and ongoing consciousness of God. It employs the Kabbalistic matrix of creation to understand the human personality and features of the cosmos. It trains self-mastery, specifically of mind, emotion, thought, speech, and behavior, with the goal of enabling the Jew to carry out responsibilities for humanity, creation, and future. That too is a rather nebulous, but all in, uh, embracing definition. And obviously you might recognize Judaism in some non-spiritual format, but I am here speaking from the tradition of Hasidism, specifically Chabad Hasidism and Jewish spiritual teachings. And as I said earlier, it traces its roots much further back in the context of history. So now we have at least an outline of these two terminologies. Mindfulness has a number of claims of benefit, and I have no doubt that they are accurate. I've seen it in practice. Boosting immunity, improves sleep, reduces stress. It's an antidepressant, increases gray matter of the brain, helps focus and memory, fosters compassion, enhances relationships, aids self-esteem and fights obesity. A number of studies research studies point to each of these particular advantages, but I might add some of these studies are rather small in the number of participants, so one has to perhaps look warily at some of them and see how the future evolves. Nevertheless, something in the context of contemporary mindfulness assists us both in terms of mind and body. However, every particular pathway can claim benefits because all positive things produce positivity. So as you can see on screen, and I'm not going to read it out, there are claimed benefits of religion. I'm not saying here spirituality per se, but religion. So therefore you see that one can actually use marketing techniques to try to sell many a product and one has to be rather discriminating and critical in order to form an assessment. Okay, let's look now at the subject matter at hand, the Jewish spiritual model of mindfulness. What are some of the component parts that we want to consider here? So I'm going to begin by explaining the methodology that takes place within ourselves to create levels of consciousness. Let me posit a rather simplistic model we have a body. We call that in Hebrew the goof. The body is not mystical. The body is relatively non-spiritual. It becomes the vehicle. It's the technological machinery. It's the physiology. But it cannot operate without power. It needs to be plugged in. And therefore, the energy that courses and flows through the goof, through the body, is an energy source. We call it the neshama. If you feel uncomfortable with the word soul or neshama, just use the word neutrally, energy. But it's clear that if the energy doesn't flow through the body, there's not going to be any animation. There won't be any 
thought process. There won't be any focusing. There won't be any mindfulness. Two seconds before a person dies, their hearing may well be totally intact. And yet two seconds after they die, they have no longer any capacity for hearing. Why is that? There's been no decomposition of the cellular functions in those two seconds, and yet the experience is no longer there. And clearly because the plug's been pulled out of the socket. In other words, the energy no longer courses through the physiology of the ear. Likewise, the eye. The eye is a piece of machinery. When the energy flows through the eye, the human experience is that of sight. And when it flows through the brain, and the brain is also, I emphasize, nothing mystical. The brain is the most complex piece of machinery, so complex that we haven't really begun to understand it to any great degree, despite what science claims for it. Nevertheless, once the energy flows through the physiology of the brain, the human experience or the human consciousness of that is called mind or seichel. So we're distinguishing here mind and brain. Brain is the machinery. Mind is the human experience of the operation of that machinery. And this dichotomy between the energy source and the physiology of the body is very, very important to understand. And I find it very surprising that even in the most sophisticated arenas in today's research and science, this distinction and dichotomy is not recognized or spoken of, and it's so very, very basic. Let me show you a pictorial rendition of some of the things that I'm saying. So we have here neshama, soul, the energy source, flowing through the machinery, the intermediary of the body, resulting in two consciousness pathways. I've only alluded to one so far. I've spoken about seichel, mind. But the truth of the matter is, there's a completely separate flow of consciousness or human experience, and that's called emotion. And here's another distinction that you and I take for granted. But the fact that mind and emotion are two distinct pathways, not merged. Much of the discussion in textbooks and elsewhere has alternating merger between the two. And they speak about emotion in context of the mind and mind in context of the emotion. And they make a total challenge out of it. And the truth of the matter is they're very distinctive. And one of the aspects that will distinguish Jewish spirituality from mindfulness is that it is much more all-embracing. We're going to see later on that in order to focus, which is one of the important central features of the mindfulness model, emotion plays a very significant role, and yet it's not considered by and large as a separate entity in the consideration of mindfulness training. But let us get to that. Let me now provide you with a little bit of a working definition of this energy source that we call the neshama. What is it? 
It's rather a nebulous term, almost a theological term, a religious term, and I see it as a very practical term. It's the energy source. The neshama can be likened to a spiritual umbilical cord, a conduit for divine spiritual energy. It, so to speak, descends through four realms, which we call olamot, each realm shaping the soul's character. Its earthly extension animates the body from the moment of conception. In other words, ensoulment takes place, or the energy begins to flow through the first cell, or at least hovers over the first cell. This spiritual umbilical cord, which we call the neshama, is never cut in context of a lifetime and forever remains connected to the body. We're going to see a diagram. So the problem here is that secular sciences don't address this energy source. So there's no comparative um, definition that I can provide you within mindfulness for what we call the soul. And again, I'm not necessarily speaking theologically here, but drawing from the Jewish spiritual teachings to help us understand what consciousness means. It's not something magic that just happens. There's a process involved. And if we can understand the dynamics of that process, our capacity at self-mastery and our capacity at self-control is that much more enhanced. So again, diagrammatically, what it looks like is as follows. Let's not worry about the fact that there are these four realms. We can discuss that another time. But it is true that the energy source goes through a series of filters. Without me explaining now, it's those filters that alter your individual energy flow which is different from the person seated next to you. Each person seated in this room is a distinctive energy flow, gifted in its own way, unlike anybody else who has ever lived or who will live other than yourself. You become reincarnated with your same soul in every lifetime. A wonderful other discussion, not for now. But the point being here, as you see, the neshama is, in fact, a flow, a spiritual umbilical cord from some unknown source, which we call Ein Sof, without end, infinity, a metaphor for God, all the way down to our world of time and space, consciousness, which is down in Asiya. So this is just a mere glimpse at the scope of which what we are discussing this particular subject from a Jewish vantage point. Now, going back to the use of the term consciousness, which is so important for our discussion of mindfulness. What is consciousness? I alluded to it earlier when I said that when the energy flows through the physiology of the ear, our consciousness experience there is called hearing and through the eye sight and through the brain seichel mind but we are at any one point a total flow of the neshama through every organ of the body when we experience 
animation and life. This second, we are conscious. Consciousness is the sum total of the neshama flowing through every piece of machinery of the body. I have yet to find a definition, a cogent definition of consciousness in Google land. And yet within our Jewish spiritual tradition, it's very exact and very, very specific and used as such. Although it's interesting that in the Hebrew language, there is not any word for consciousness. Could someone please correct me? I couldn't find one. Because we're much more pragmatic. We describe the process rather than a nebulous term, which doesn't mean very much. If I speak in terms of consciousness, you're really, generally speaking in the English language, not clear as to what I'm talking about, and yet you know intuitively what it means. And what does that mean about subconsciousness? And that's an interesting term. So I'm going to give you a Jewish spiritual definition here also. Subconsciousness can be viewed as the experiences of the neshama in the higher realms, which we saw a diagram earlier, above our realm of time and space. Although the neshama is always flowing through the four realms, our consciousness is rooted here. The experience of the subconscious becomes more active via sleep, unconsciousness, near-death phenomena, death, those being instances where the neshama is partially and to different degrees dislocated from the body. When we are asleep, the Talmud describes that as one-sixtieth death. Forget the notion of proportionality, but it means that there is a partial dislocation of the energy source or a dampening of the energy source through the body. Sufficient flow to allow animation and life, but also sufficient removal of intensity to put us to sleep, which means that the neshama becomes aware of itself at higher levels. So sleep itself is a very important phenomenon to be able to understand this dichotomy. Death is also a dislocation of the two, but it's not complete. Your soul still remains connected to your body at the point of death, after death. Otherwise, there would not be a physical body. The fact that there is a physical body means that there is some energy source maintaining the structure of your being. Not here, but elsewhere we'll speak about five levels of the soul, nefesh, ruach, neshama, chayin, yechida, and the lower level, nefesh, remains connected, which is why we go to the graveside of tzaddikim and our dear departed ones, because there's a level of consciousness still there, which is able to be connected to. But for our purposes, it's very important to understand the subconscious, to use the term dynamics, because we want to ask ourselves in the area of mindfulness, where do thoughts come from? How do they pop into the head? Why am I thinking of this at this moment? Why am I framing my interpretation of the circumstances this way or that way, negatively or positively? How can I change my mindfulness stance? And yes, 
You could do it quite simplistically, the way that mindfulness does, which is via displacement, which means to change your momentary interpretation, put in another thought, which is a very effective mechanism, but it's much more powerful for permanent unhabituation of, say, negative thinking or negative interpretation to be able to understand the antecedents as you draw from your subconscious and change that profile so that you become naturally positive. As you see, it's an extension of the kind of mindfulness that's being spoken about in the Western world. So there's a much bigger picture, I think, that we find within the Jewish spiritual paradigm of the nature of a human being than what is being proposed in the secular world. Not that it matters to the extent of effectiveness, because there's a lot of effective work that's been done in the world of mindfulness as such. But I think there's a more permanent, all-embracing change of personality or default responses to circumstances that can arise through the Jewish spiritual model. Now, we've been speaking about mindfulness in terms of mind, because the word mind is so heavily embedded within the term mindfulness. As I mentioned earlier, we have the neshama flow, but this time I'm not talking about its flow through the body at large, but through the brain, as I mentioned earlier. And I said to you that it produces two primary spiritual animations, one of seichel, mind, which we are primarily dealing with here, but also midos, Midot, emotions. Let me stay with mind, because that seems to be where mindfulness is directed, although I want to expand on that in terms of emotion shortly. So why don't we look at this particular model now, where we have mind, seichel, that means the soul flowing through the brain, and now let's analyze what it is that it produces. And this is closer to mastering the way that we interpret reality and think about it or focus on it. Through mind, three distinct stages of mind consciousness arises. The first stage we call Chochmah. Chochmah, which is commonly rendered in modern Hebrew as wisdom, but it really means a process. Chochmah means the way that we give birth to a thought. The way that I go fishing in the pond of my subconsciousness and I catch a fish. That thought. Why that thought? Why that inter beginning of interpretation? Why not another one which goes something towards my personality, my innate spiritual flow? but also something which becomes conditioned in life by my formative childhood experience, by my environmental and cultural setting, and various other phenomena that we experience in life as such. But nevertheless, there is a transition from nothing to something. Koach ma, chochma, the potential of what was nothing, and now becomes something. That moment of a thought popping into your head. Now, if I ask you under meditative uh, uh, exercise to try to look at and view 
the stream of thinking that passes through your mind and ask you in each instance where there's a change to ask yourself, where did that thought arise from? It might be an interesting exercise. Of course, associative thinking is one feature of it, but doesn't explain all of it. So there's this first stage of the neshama flowing through the physiology of the brain, and that's called chokhmah, right? Birthing of thought. Then we have a second stage. Once the thought pops into your head, it's not really a thought yet. It's just a general idea. And even the word idea is too crystalline to describe what that initial aberration is. So then we choose to spend time on that beginning point and give it dimensions of breadth and depth. And that's called bina analysis. You spend time thinking about the birth of that thought or that thought, and you give it some sense of reality. It may take you here, it may take you there. Again, it depends on your manner, habitually or innately, that you travel with the beginnings of the thought. And I might say to you at this moment, you can change that. You can change the way you go fishing in the pond of subconsciousness at Chochmah level. You can change the way that you analyze, reframe, reinterpret. And therefore there's methodology to change your perception of reality. Say, for example, from negative thinking to positive thinking to allow positive thinking to become your default. And that way, of course, undo much of the stressors, stressors in your life, as well as to be able to create a greater degree of equanimity and calm at the same time. But if I go to the third stage, then I'm talking where Jewish spiritual teachings overlap very clearly with contemporary mindfulness. And that's in the world of Da'at, the third stage. What's the third stage? After, being, after analysis, there's a conclusion. Most of the time, there isn't a strong conclusion, and the thought passes. But sometimes, when you're project-oriented, when you're goal-oriented, when you've got purpose, you focus on that analysis. You focus on that thought. And the more that you focus on that thought, the more you own it. Owning that thought is what we call in English, in our terminology, focusing. What is focusing? We're going to spend a bit more time analyzing it. But by owning it, you find that you give birth to something further. What happens when you profoundly focus on an, on an idea that's of interest to you? The answer is, it gives birth to emotions. You begin to feel for it. Innately within the level of Da'at are seven emotions which now become explicated as you profoundly focus. And as in mindfulness we're asked to focus, whatever it may be that the instructor is suggesting, in terms of usually a positive vantage point, you begin to not just own it, want it, but it gives rise to an emotion, and these emotions excite 
provide the promise, etc. So when we speak in terms of emotions, it's a separate outgrowth from Da'at. But again, I want to remain just here. So we're talking about these three stages. Now these are simply aptitudes at the moment. The truth of the matter is the terminology that I've used, Chochma, Bina and Da'at, aren't actual thought process. They're the spiritual vehicles that will become ultimately thought process. And more than just thought. So have a look at the next diagrammatic model. So you have Seichel, mind flow, operating through the third feature of Da'at, focusing. And that gives rise, once you allow yourself to focus, to three consciousness flows of thought, speech, and behavior. Machshava, Dibur, and Masa. I've spoken about Machshava, thought process. But you know, you don't open your mouth and say anything unless you feel sufficiently to do so. If you don't feel like saying something, you won't. So at what point do you actually open your mouth and say something? It's when the emotions provide sufficient energy to allow you to do so. You have to want it to open your mouth and, and speak. Even more so, to act. More energy is required. So unless you have, again, sufficient focus in Da'at, you won't think, and you won't speak, and you won't act. Imagine if we had training programs that allowed us to look at that connection of focusing and what our thought process is. Could we direct our thought process? Can we go one step further and train ourselves to use words, speech, in a more appropriate manner? Can we, through a state of awareness of who we are with and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, change our default response and speak differently? And I often use this in couples' counseling in terms of changing the way one speaks to the other. And to do so, you have to have some sort of understanding of where speech arises from, from context of thought. So as you see, I'm diverging from the classic mindfulness model and speaking much more in terms of wider aspects. And in Jewish spiritual training, therefore, of mindfulness, quote, unquote, there are many more features that are able to be called upon, so self-understanding, provides much more value to the outcome that is tangible in the world. Imagine if we all spoke differently to each other. Imagine if we didn't have a woke phenomenon because we felt more secure and were able to speak positively to each other. And at a geopolitical level, what that might mean. And what that might mean in the world at large. And what that might mean in terms of Mashiach coming finally after being so overdue, and onwards and onwards. But you can see the implications in training here are much more vast than in what is contemporary mindfulness. Okay. Another dimension which I alluded to in context of just the Da'at level, focusing. When I focus, there are dimensions here also. It's not just focusing on something. 
What's the breadth, the amplitude of the range of thoughts available at this moment? I can choose what I could be thinking, what I should be thinking. I have no problem speaking in terms of should. We are judgmental. We are not non-judgmental. But then I guess I'm using the word specifically. If non-judgmental means that at this moment I'm assessing and only later I'll make up my mind whether I agree or disagree, that's fine. But if non-judgmental, which is such an essential point within mindfulness, means that I use no criteria to measure good or bad, right or wrong, then Jewish spirituality disagrees to a very large extent. So we have a range of thoughts. What should I be thinking right now? The person is being obnoxious. The person is being provocative. The person is putting me down. The default response by a lot of people is, I have to now rise to the occasion and demonstrate my prowess that I possess self-esteem and therefore I too will raise my voice and I'll show the other one that I'm not a schmutter. That way, altercation, disconnectedness and madness lies. That solves nothing. You don't even prove to yourself you possess self-esteem. So the point being is, what could be my interpretation? So last night, in the methodology of undoing any state of anger, because I made the very provocative statement that anger is absolutely forbidden in Judaism, and I quoted Maimonides and the Torah, and I know when I say that, my audience immediately becomes very angry with me, but it's absolutely true. And not only that, I provided the promise that you don't have to be angry under any circumstances. Anger simply doesn't arise if you play your cards right because you draw the interpretation from a different place. You unhabituate the negativity. You habituate the positivity and onwards and onwards. Of course, then someone asked me in the audience, well, what about in the case of someone wanting to come and murder you? God forbid. So I said, don't get angry because anger simply confuses you. You have to be strategic. You have to defend yourself, not anger. A good sports coach will teach his or her players never to get angry on the field. It spoils their capacity of efficacy, right? So it's very, very important to draw that distinction. But that's a digression. So you have the breadth, the range of interpretation and thoughts. Then you have the depth of the thought. To what extent? Am I able to peer into the circumstance? And then there's context. In other words, what is right in one context may not be right in another context. So here's a whole world just on this slide alone that we could spend time to train and to understand and be able to become much more appropriate in our interpersonal lives. I want to leave room and time for us to... Uh, communicate to each other. So rest assured that whatever questions you have, we'll be able to air them. So what does Jewish mindfulness training consist of? I suppose it might mean that contemporary mindfulness, judging from what I've said so far, training per se seems to be limited 
to training aspects of Da'at, not Chochmah and Bina, but contemporary mindfulness seems to be located in what we would call the one singular area of Da'at, focusing. General meditative awareness of setting and stimuli and specific thought flow displacement skills to alleviate stress, worry, and anxiety. So that's how we generally practice contemporary mindfulness, very, very fruitfully and very, very well. Jewish mindfulness training would holistically include Chochmah and Bina, which seems to be lacking out there, and have that training, including the pattern of habitually birthing of one's thoughts and strengthening one's analytical skills. This makes it that much more all-rounded and provides far greater capacity for self-change. When we say self-change, it's not enough simply to be a changed person in the moment, but rather to be by nature a changed person to change your very nature, not just to change your capacity in the moment. Both are good, but one is deeper than the other. You want to become a much more pacific individual who is able to respond with greater awareness and do so always, not just under provocation, not just under economic threat, not just in the moments of financial crisis or relationship crisis, but all the time, and become a changed person. It would also include training of midot, the seven emotions, and their derivative and interface with seichel and mind. In other words, it's much broader, but it's not just mindfulness training, it's much more holistic to take in emotions at the same time and train the emotions. And that becomes a whole new ball game and a very, very important one because our ambient state of being is so much governed by our feelings. So if we could be much more coherent and cogent in our feelings, that would make a great difference also in the way that we interpret and would also include training of mind and body for the practice of mitzvot soul connections to God and the nurture of spiritual consciousness because that's what the goal is. The goal isn't, I want to be a better person. When people come to me and say, you know, Label, I really want to be a better person. I want to grow. I want to evolve. My response to them is, why are you so selfish? And they say, well, what have I said wrong? Is anything wrong to grow and evolve? And I say, yeah, it's all about you. What do you mean, you want? Do you have a goal for that? It doesn't end with you. What you should be saying is, I want to evolve and grow to be a better husband, a better wife, a better citizen, a better parent, a better friend. It's not enough just to practice self-mastery because you want to be better. Nothing gained there. There's a higher purpose, a higher calling for every human being. And it's the higher goal. And if you don't do it for a purpose, it's no use going to the gym and fitness center day after day and say, wow, I feel great. But why do you want to feel great? Just because you want to have the high? You want to have the egotistic experience? Or is it that you want the body, the machinery, to be more 
apt for the flow of the neshama through it so that your consciousness can be raised towards the goal, in our case of Jewish spirituality, of connecting to God through mitzvot, whatever the other goals you might, may choose. So in conclusion, the question being, are the two compatible, mindfulness and Jewish spirituality? As long as we leave out some of the Buddhist underpinnings that sometimes filter through some of the contemporary writings, the two do partially overlap, with an emphasis on partially. The terminology of mindfulness lacks the preciseness of Jewish spiritual teachings of Hasidus, as you have seen, and provides an incomplete human model. Not necessarily does mindfulness set out to provide a human model, so I'm not in any way being critical of it, but pointing out that it isn't total in its goal and nature, whereas Jewish spirituality is. Any underlying Buddhist concepts and ideas would need to be critically assessed. Mindfulness training in Judaism has far wide-ranging scope to include Chochmah, Bina, and Midos for a more sophisticated model of inner balance and propriety. The Jewish approach doesn't shirk value judgments of thoughts, speech, and behaviors to be based on Torah standards. The Jewish goal is not merely relief of troubling mind and body symptoms, but also to practice mitzvot, to be an effective co-creator of an unfinished universe. We have five minutes left, judging by the uh, scorecard that's been shown to me at the back. So I'm going to ask you, are there any questions or thoughts you want to raise? Yes. Um, there's a microphone coming to you just there so that everyone can hear your wonderful question. Okay, um, thank you so much, first of all. So I have a couple questions. Um, my understanding, the definition that I always had of consciousness, and I'm just wondering what you think about it, is the awareness of our oneness, you know, with, with God, and that that is why we are here to grow in consciousness, is to be more and more aware of our oneness with God and with each other, and that on a physical level, we're all separate, but on a spiritual level, we're all one big soul, which have our own little yes. compartments. Here lies the difference between consciousness and awareness. The two are not synonymous. In other words, what you're describing is probably best used in the English word awareness. We have to be aware of our connectedness, in your words, to God, and have that always uh, prevalent in the way that we operate. Consciousness is the actual experience within that we somehow are able to intuit. So awareness means to know about it, and consciousness is it. Okay, got awareness it. about it and it. Okay, that's helpful. And then the other thing you talked about, um, which I think is like so important, like where do thoughts emanate from? So my understanding is, is that... Um, Whatever household we grow up in, we develop emotional imprints from our parents and our surroundings, and that emotional imprint becomes our experience. Now, obviously, later, if you learn how, you can change that, but I think my understanding is that all of our thoughts 
arise to validate our emotional experience. So what I mean by that is if you grow up in a household where there's anger, constant anger, then what's going to happen is your thoughts are going to tell you why you should be angry with everyone and everything so you can validate that emotional experience. If you grow up in a house where there's joy, then you're just going to find the joy and the happiness in everything with okay. your thoughts. And so is the idea that instead of ch- so the idea of it is instead of changing your thoughts to learn how to change your emotional experience and to train the muscle of let's say feeling joy when you grew up feeling anger and that will change the thoughts so I was just curious about your I can't fault anything that you've said um, one word that you used that I'd like to pick up on valid the word validate which is used a lot I'm not sure what it actually means does validate mean makes it right or does validate mean I recognize it and therefore I need to deal with it one way or the other? But that doesn't matter. That's just in passing that I find there's certain terminologies that are used both in counseling practice and in Western psychology, which seems to come over and over again and become a value in its own right. And I like to question all these. I'm not sure what validate is actually as a terminology, but that's nothing to do with your question. With your points, yes. We are raised, the neshama is sent down, reincarnated into a set of circumstances perfectly matched for its challenge in this lifetime whatever be the formative childhood experience, etc. And therefore, the test is, to what extent can I veer away from what might be the environmental process towards a standard that I adopt? And the standard that we adopt is the Torah. To what extent I am at a distance from it, I will then try to train to move towards it. One of the problems in the universe today is there are no standards, there are no truths, everything's relativistic, and therefore no one has anything to be able to work towards. One generation's right is the next generation's wrong. There's no standards. And as a consequence of that, growth is very difficult to be validated, to use your term. Okay, I'll take one last question because I think we're over time. Yes. Thank you so much. My question or my request would be, Could you take us through an example of a training where we're training the chokmah and the bina and strengthening it for a a pattern that would be more... um, Yes, I could. If I had another hour, I'd be more than happy to. But unfortunately, we've just run out of time. Um, If you were to email me, I'd be very happy to provide you with materials. And those of you who'd like to receive our producer daily three-minute meditation, which comes to your WhatsApp, just email me your cell number. I'll do so. I want to tell you it was a pleasure to spend time with you. I hope it's been useful. I know I learn every time I teach anything and understand it better, and I hope I've shared it with you to that extent. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.